Welcome to the Well SGV podcast. We exist to multiply followers of Jesus rooted in the gospel who worship, walk, and witness to God's glory. Here's our message for the week. Please uh, join me in a word of prayer. We're going to just go right into it. And uh, yeah, there's just so much uh, that I think the Lord wants to share and uh, to, to speak to us about. He is present. And uh, we are just rejoicing uh, that this passage we get to look at, I think, is going to fill our hearts with uh, hope and joy this morning. So let's uh, please join me in a word of prayer. Father, we thank you for uh, your word. And we thank you, Lord Jesus, that uh, truly it's your blood that washes us, that cleanses us. We thank you for that cross. And we thank you, God, as we have sung that we were made by you. Uh, We were made for you, to commune with you, to know you. And so, Lord God, I pray that uh, today that you would draw our hearts to yourself uh, by the power of the Holy Spirit through your word, uh, that, Lord, we acknowledge you are right now here in this place with us, uh, that you are moving in our hearts and our midst. So open our hearts to be sensitive to the ways that you're speaking to us. Uh, Let us respond. Uh, Let us hear your word. Uh, Let us see you by faith this morning. Uh, You are faithful. And we thank you, God, uh, that you are faithful to give us your word and show yourself to us. We love you, Lord Jesus, and we pray in Christ's name. Amen. Got off to a little bit late start this morning, um, and I feel slightly out of sorts. I uh, got back a little bit late last night, and uh, thank you. Some of you asked me uh, about yesterday, uh, on Friday, uh, Mimi and I, we drove up to uh, Livermore, Pleasanton area. And then yesterday, we had the celebration of life service uh, from my friend, Rob, uh, who passed away. I, I kind of mentioned this earlier in a different sermon. He passed away from pancreatic cancer uh, on June 2nd. It was a great, great uh, honor, a privilege for me to be there to perform this uh, service for my friend, Rob. Uh, I had witnessed him coming to faith in Christ uh, when I was in San Jose and pastoring a church back then. And he became a believer. He put his faith in Jesus. Uh, I got to baptize him. And then I had the joy of marrying he and his uh, bride, Una. And um, uh, this was back in the day. And uh, since they raised two boys, uh, both in high school uh, now. And uh, and then yesterday, I got to perform their celebration of life, his celebration of life service. Um, So there's just so many things that are going through my heart and my mind. Um, you know, Rob was a very special guy. I just wanted to kind of pay a little special tribute uh, to him. Uh, Rob, he, you know, is a very, very uh, talented, smart guy. He graduated from Duke University, uh, went into Silicon Valley. He became a, an executive at a tech company. Uh, very, very good, you know, successful career. Uh, but uh, more than that, he was just a very, very loving husband and loving father. And he was just a great friend to many, many people. And we had a chapel uh, where we did the service, and it was completely packed out. And the standing room, people were crowding outside in the lobby area because they couldn't even, there was not even enough standing room. In the chapel, people flying in from all over the country. Uh, this is the kind of life that he lived. And we had probably about eight, nine people who came up and shared story after story about who he was. And the stories that were very consistent about my friend Rob was this. 
He was just someone who was joyful, uh, someone who lived with deep gratitude, as I shared with you. Uh, he was one of those persons where no matter how challenging the situation in life, he just didn't plunge into self-pity. He didn't go to that place where he just dwelled in sorrow. Uh, he was always just living his life in full gratitude before God. And uh, he was just a great friend, always reaching out to people, always checking up. And he was one of these guys that when I left the church and then my uh, family and I, we moved to China, he would constantly text, like uh, Facebook message me, how are you doing? How can we support you? How can we pray for you? And he remembered specific trips I took. I remember to Sichuan earthquake to help the earthquake victims there. And he remembered that. He said, I hope that, you know, the Lord used you to be of support there. And, uh, but one of these guys that just, he lived his life, his 51 years in this life, um, he lived it fully, he lived it well, loving people well. And I was reminded that, you know, at the end of the day, at the end of life, right, people will not care your net worth, how much money you made, your degrees, your college, your school you went to, like that's not, you know, people aren't gonna remember you for that. But what people will remember is, who were you as a person? Yeah, how did you live your life? Did you live your life in such a way that, that really just loved people well, that cared for people well? Were you a good friend to those around you? Were you a loving husband, a loving father? father would you, did you love the people around you well? And that is what will stick out in people's hearts and minds. And uh, more importantly, even for Rob, is that he loved Jesus. He loved the Lord. And the Lord loved Rob. And now he's in the presence of the Savior that he came to love and worship. And that is our great hope. So uh, that was, um, yeah, so anyway, uh, just really, really just joyful, grateful, and very privileged to just be part of his life and the way he touched my life as well. And so just want to kind of uh, share that with you uh, this morning. But, uh, you know, we do want to talk about First John. And uh, in connection to what I just talked about in terms of love, First uh, John really is a message about joy. It's about love. I'm going to scoot this out a little bit. But uh, as I've been talking about, uh, I think my friend Rob had a supernatural well of joy because he knew Jesus and Jesus knew him. And as we've been going through this book, 1 John is all about, about knowing God, knowing Jesus personally. And as you come to know Jesus personally, he is able to give you a well of joy that is deep, that's supernatural, that human words just can't do justice to. That is a reality of knowing Jesus as your living Lord and Savior. And this is what First John is getting at. And we talked about last week or last Sunday that to know this God, to know this living God, um, and to know joy in your life, you've got to begin with the fact that God is light, that God is holy, and that God is completely pure. Uh, there's no darkness in him at all. 
And because he is holy, he is opposed to all that goes against what is good, true, right, and beautiful. This is who he is. He is holy. So Habakkuk 1.13, all throughout scripture, shows us, you who are of pure eyes, then to see evil and cannot look at wrong. In Psalm chapter 5, verse 4 to 5, David says, uh, You are not a God who delights in wickedness. Evil may not dwell with you. The boastful shall not stand before your eyes. You hate all evildoers. Now, when you see in Scripture, and I mentioned this, when people had a genuine encounter with Jesus, when they genuinely encountered who God was, uh, it was not casual. It wasn't like, oh, cool, you know, I, I just met with Jesus. I just met God, you know. Um, what you will find in Scripture is people were completely undone when they came into encounter with the living God. We saw that with Isaiah. You see this with Peter, even the Apostle Paul, um, that he's on that road to Damascus, and you know he thought he was following God, and he com- gets completely undone by the Lord Jesus Christ. So you see this throughout Scripture. Um, and this is very counterintuitive to our concept of joy, isn't it? Like when I say joy, um, we normally don't associate joy with the holiness of God. Uh, we associate with joy with, uh, you know, his grace, his mercy, uh, with his love for me. Uh, we associate joy with those things. But to, to say God is holy and there's no darkness in him at all, he is light. And then to say this is how you get joy, in, in our minds, this, there seems to be a disconnect. Like, how does this actually work? Well, God's love means absolutely nothing without God's light. And that's what I was trying to get at last Sunday. If you don't begin with the holiness of God, the light of God, then the love of God and the mercy of God really just sort of, it becomes more of a sentimental feeling that we hear it, oh, God loves you, and that's nice, but it doesn't really impact us. Think of a parent, and they let their kid just run around wild, do whatever they want, right? Like, in the name of love, Okay, you cheat, you steal, you lie, but hey, our position as parents, we're here to support you. We want to support your desires. We're here to kind of let you figure out what your desires are and then just support you in that. But that's not love at all. A parent who enforces no discipline, no boundaries, healthy boundaries, there's no consequences for Uh, bad actions, bad choices, those things, that's not good parenting. We wouldn't call that love. We would call that permissiveness or even neglectful parenting. Just to let someone do whatever they feel like. But the best parenting is full of both light, that is to teach what's right and wrong, and training children in what's right and wrong with consistent consequences, and love, nurture, and care in the backdrop of all of that. So to have a God who, quote, loves us, but there's no holiness or light, 
that is not what we would consider, that, that would not be a good God. Love only makes sense when you have standards of right and wrong and you act in the best interest of the person that you're loving. And there's a joy and confidence that comes from children towards their parents when they have healthy boundaries, healthy discipline their children in a loving, nurturing environment. It instills confidence and joy. And that's the same with God. Um, a God who is light and love. And this is how we find our joy in God, that he is both. Today, I want to get at another paradoxical truth of Christianity. And that is that joy comes from admitting that we're sinners who need a savior. Joy comes from admitting that we're sinners who need a savior. Now, you're thinking, ah, this is why I come to church, to hear that I'm a sinner? You know, like, would you just preach something that's uplifting for me? I need a boost, you know, for my week. And you're telling me God is light, he's holy, I'm a sinner, and all these things. Um, and yet, this is exactly the message that John and the Bible convey to you. This is exactly how he wants to start us off. And I'll tell you why this leads to great joy. Well, I have a couple points. First of all, and we'll look, as we look at this passage, that John will show us, we are sinners. The Bible tells us clearly that we are sinners. It's replete throughout these verses here. Verse 6, verse 8, verse 10. If we say that we have fellowship with him while we walk, walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But darkness, the idea of darkness is sin. It's living away from God. Now, on the one hand, if we keep living in sin, then that is hypocrisy. On the other hand, John is telling us in verses 8 and 10, yet if we say we have no sin, we are deceiving ourselves. If we say that we have not sinned, we make God to be a liar and his word is not in us. In other words, John is saying to deny the fact that we're sinners is akin to lying to ourselves, self-deception, and lying to God himself. These are pretty strong words that John is getting across. And again, as you hear these words, this is very counterintuitive to joy, right? We often think of joy as what's good for my comfort, for what makes me feel good. But John is interested in you and I knowing the true God and to begin with, to say God is holy and we're sinners. And this is going to lead to our joy. Well, in church, you come and you hear the word sin all the time. And you hear us preachers talk about we're sinners, we're sinners, all of this. But a lot of times, this word sin is kind of just vaguely thrown out there. And we have our known notions of what sin is. Right? Sometimes we equate sin with maybe a great piece of chocolate cake and dessert. Oh, that was just sinfully delicious, right? And so, so sinful, right? And sin is, 
is nothing more than just simply adding calories, right? That is sinful, right? Uh, or maybe Sin City. What, what uh, happens in Vegas stays in Vegas, right? And so we associate it with secrecy and all of that. But what does sin actually mean? When the Bible talks about sin, what are we actually talking about? This is so important. Sin in the Bible is not just simply what you do. It's not just your behaviors. As the Bible talks about sin, it's talking about something much deeper. It's talking about our condition, our nature. In other words, we don't just make sinful and bad choices. We sin because at the core of our being, our nature is sin. It's not simply a common cold. Think of it as a cancer that's affected the very DNA of our being. This is how the Bible would describe sin, which leads to the second point. Sin is it's an inward disposition that seeks self-autonomy from God. Self-autonomy from God. Okay? So, I want you to understand this idea. There are many good, decent, moral, religious people in the world. Okay? Uh, very nice. Nice, nice people. But, we're not talking about morality here. We're not talking about someone who's simply nice, and some, someone who's religious. We're talking about at the core of their being is an essence that lives their life independently from God. In other words, their life is self-sufficient. That is how the Bible would describe sin. So there are three words to describe sin. Well, the first word is the word sin, which you hear a lot. And the word sin comes from the Hebrew word kata, the, the Greek word hamartia, but sin simply means fail or missing the mark. It's to fail or miss the mark. Think of an archer who's trying to hit the target, right? But he misses the mark of where he's aiming at. And when the Bible describes sin, what are we aiming, what is the aim or what's the goal or what is it that we're missing the mark on? Think of the Ten Commandments. The first half of the Ten Commandments is about loving God. The second half of the Ten Commandments is loving people. So sin is a failure to give honor to God in the way he deserves honor and glory, to love him with all our heart, with all our being. And it's a failure to love people the way that they deserve to be loved in the image of God. And to fail to love people as they deserve to be treated is a failure to love God himself. This is how the, the Bible would describe sin. It is missing the mark of what God intended and created us to be. Another word to describe sin in the Bible is this word iniquity. Iniquity refers to crooked behavior. And then the, finally, another word is the word transgression, which is the idea of breaking trust. So these are three common words that you'll find in the Bible that describe sin. Um, and sin is... By nature, it is self-deceiving. In other words, it makes us think that we're doing the right thing when in reality, in God's eyes, we're actually doing the wrong thing. That's the nature of sin itself. So a couple examples of this in the Bible is think about Pharaoh. Pharaoh, who was the leader, the king of Egypt, he was seeking to, 
he was, he was thinking he was doing a good thing for his country. He was trying to improve the economy, the development of his country. But how was he doing that? By enslaving the Israelites and forcing them into uh, forced labor in order to accomplish this goal of improving and developing his country of Egypt, right? And this happens even today. We see all kinds of abuse, exploitation, abuse of power, all these kinds of things, right? But if you ask the leader themselves, do you think that you're doing the right thing? They will absolutely think, yes, this is a good thing that I'm doing. This is the right thing to do because the ends will justify the means, right? And that's what sin does. Even though we're majorly failing, in our minds we think we're doing what's good. Another example of that is the Apostle Paul, before he became, uh, before the Lord Jesus grabbed hold of him, he became an apostle, Saul, uh, you know, he was Saul the Pharisee, and what was he doing? He was going around, he was hunting down Christians, seeking to imprison them, and to kill them. If you ask Saul at the time, Saul, what are you doing? Do you think this is good? He would say, absolutely, this is good. In fact, he would say, I am serving the God of my forefathers, and I am very zealous to serve him. In his mind, he was doing what was absolutely right. And it was only if it weren't for the the deliverance, uh, the revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ stopping him in his tracks on the road to Damascus, blinding him, and then helping him to see, Saul, you've been blind this whole time. Now you've got to see what the truth is. He wouldn't have known. And this is what I'm talking about. This is exactly what the Bible talks about when it talks about sin. Sin is so tricky It makes us think that we're doing the right thing when in reality, according to God's word, it could be completely wrong. And we justify ourselves thinking this is good and right. So sin has this way, right? Redefining bad into what's good, good into what's bad. And then as a result, we become crooked. The idea of iniquity, terrible judges of what's good and right before God. And Sin is a powerful force that runs very deep within us. It's so powerful we cannot overcome it on our own. That is the reality of how the scripture describes it. The third thing to note is that the consequences of sin leads to destructive choices and patterns of behavior. The example of Pharaoh, the example of Saul, Now, we have the benefit of looking back and thinking, wow, how could they be so wrong? How could they be so blind? Of course, that's very destructive. But again, they wouldn't think so. But yet, this is what we find in Scripture. Lives, you and I, as we sung, we were made by God. We were made for God. If our lives are not centered around God himself, then what happens is we end up defining for ourselves what's right and wrong. We define our own identity, our purpose in life, our own meaning, but when we do so, it leads to all kinds of mess. Give you two analogies here. Think about an orchestra. In in an orchestra, you have the conductor, and the conductor is the one that all the instruments, all the musicians, uh, they're all looking to the conductor to get their cue. But what happens if 
let's say the first chair of every section, the violin, the, the viola, you know, the percussion, what if they decided, you know what, I'm gonna take the lead. I'm not gonna get my cue from the conductor. I'm going to just take the lead from my section. What's gonna happen? You don't have music, you have noise, right? A chaos of noise that collides against one another, right? Or think about the sun. We know by now that all the planets in our, solar, in our uh, galaxy, in our solar system, it revolves around the sun, right? Before we thought, you know, before all this, we thought that all the, you know, everything kind of revolved around the earth. We thought we were the center, but we were wrong. That actually life, in order for it to flourish, it must revolve around the sun. But what if every planet decided, you know what? I'm the center of this universe, and therefore I think I'm gonna create my own orbit. All the planets need to orbit around me. And every planet thought that. What, what you, what's gonna happen, right? They're gonna, you know, there'd be no life. There'd be death, there'd be destruction. Uh, the universe could not exist as we know it. It needs to revolve around the sun. And that's what the Bible describes. If our lives, are not oriented around the Son, Jesus, around God, it leads to destruction. It leads to all kinds of disaster. When we decide for ourselves what's right and what's wrong, when we define that, and we do not allow the holiness of God or the Word of God to challenge our deepest assumptions, then in reality, in God's eyes, it may be completely evil and wrong, but we don't even know it. And this is what leads to all kinds of selfishness, jealousy, envy, strife, war, uh, sexual objectification, assault, addiction, all of those things, right? Here's the words of Jesus. Jesus says this, and he gives an accurate assessment of the human, true human condition. He says, for from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. These are the words of Jesus. He's giving a pretty straightforward assessment of the human heart. This is how Jesus would des describe our, our true condition. And this is not easy to hear on the ears, is it? And yet this is exactly what God says about you and I. Why in the world is this joyful news? Well, you cannot have the right remedy unless you diagnose the right problem. If you go to the doctor and they simply prescribe to you aspirin when what you really need is surgery, we call that malpractice because it leads to harm and death. And so when the Bible is pointing out these things to you and I, it's not pointing, Jesus is not pointing this out to you and I with a finger to try to just you know, shame you and accuse you. 
That's not what Jesus is intending. What he's doing is he's, as the ultimate physician of the soul, he's giving you and I the most accurate diagnosis of our true condition. We think we have the common cold. He's saying, no, you have a cancer. And what I need to do is I need to do a deep surgical work in your life. And this is what he's saying. Which leads to my next point. And this is what John is going to get at. But admitting our sin can only lead to joy. Admitting our sin can only lead to joy. Another one of these ironic truths of the Bible. But admitting our sin can only lead to joy. Look at what 1 John says. If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us from all sin. Now, what does it mean to walk in the light as he is in the light? Walking in the light cannot mean sinless perfection, right? I mean, Jesus just told us that from within are all these evil thoughts that come out of us. So it can't mean that. And it cannot mean sinless perfection because here it's, John says, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus' son cleanses us from all sin. Uh, there would be no need for the blood of Jesus to cleanse us if this was talking about us being sinless. John is not referring to sinlessness. He's talking about sin consciousness. Sin consciousness. It means, what, what John is getting at is this. It means that you and I are being honest with ourselves and with God and with others about our sin and we're confessing them. It's learning to bring to light sin and letting God then do his purifying work in our lives. That is what John is referring to. And in fact, in verse 9, he goes on to say, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we bring our sins to the light, if we confess them before God, and what does it mean to confess? This Greek word homo logizo, the same. It's logizo to say, it's literally to say, God, I agree with you, and I'm saying the same thing about my sin as you say about my sin. I'm confessing the same thing about it. That's what it means to confess sin. In other words, it's no longer making excuses for our sin, but it's saying the same thing as what God says in his word, calling it for what it is, bringing it to the light, and then receiving God's, God's forgiveness and cleansing. This is what it means. For God to forgive is a cancellation of your debts. To cancel the debt of your sin, the penalty of it. And to cleanse it then is to wash away the the defiling effect of sin on our souls. To make us pure, clean in our hearts. See, forgiveness, and this is the good news. Forgiveness is promised to you, not because of how well you and I have performed morally or spiritually. We don't come to God and say, God, look at how great a Christian I've been this past week. Look at how extra disciplined I've been. Look at all the hard work and ministry I've put in. 
look at how I've avoided so many major sins in my life this past week, that is not the basis of how we come before God. We come before God, and the reason why we receive forgiveness from him is simply because, as the Bible says, he is faithful and he is just to forgive us. We come not on the basis of our character, our performance, or our worth. We come on the basis of his character, and this is good news. God is faithful. He is just to forgive you and I of our sins, and God cannot go against his word his promise. He's paid it all through his son on the cross. Now, some people, again, when they hear the Bible talking about sin and, oh, I'm a sinner, all these things, it's like, oh, you know, we kind of like sort of react against it. And some people feel threatened by this knowledge. It's too, too traumatic, you know, uh, for their psyche to handle uh, these words and to, and to, to, uh, to admit them. Uh, shame for, maybe threatening to our sense of self-esteem. But this is only true if you're basing your relationship with God on your own righteousness, on your own moral performance, on you being a good person. Then it's very threatening, and you'll retreat further away from God. You'll get further and further away from him. But if you base your relationship with God and your acceptance of him based not on what you've done, but on what Christ alone has done, then there is freedom to admit it. There's freedom to come before God, to confess. And the way that you know that you are grasping what Christianity is talking about, what we call the gospel of God's grace, this good news is that the realizations of increasing layers and depths of your heart and of the sinfulness doesn't lead you to go away from God. It leads you to confession and greater gratitude for God's grace and for the cross and all that Jesus did to pay the penalty for your sins on the cross. It leads you to tremendous gratitude and joy. That's how you know the gospel is actually sinking in. That's the litmus test right there. This is why David, in Psalm 51, verse 1, that's why David, in the Old Testament, he could confess his sins with the confidence of God's mercy. He says, or Psalm 51, he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. But who is, what is David appealing to? He is, he is coming with a genuine heart of repentance confident of God's mercy, confident of God's unfailing love, and therefore he could confess. Tim Keller, uh, who I tend to quote a lot next to the Bible here, okay, maybe a little too much, uh, but uh, he has some good things to say, and this is what he says. We must be ruthlessly honest about our flaws and weaknesses, we do all we can to avoid the unreality of putting on our best face. We should come to God knowing our only hope is in his grace and forgiveness and being honest about our doubts, our fears, and emptiness. We should come to God with the disposition of a beggar. So counterintuitive, isn't it? We want to come to God so often as those who have proven, hey, I'm a good person. You know, you should accept me. I've done well. 
And it's so hard to take the position of a beggar. It goes against our self-image, our pride. And yet, this is exactly what Jesus in the Bible and, and Apostle John is calling us to do. And when you do, God promises he will give grace. You will find grace in the lowest place. That's how the Bible would describe it. On our way back uh, last night, you know, as Mimi and I are driving back uh, from Livermore, uh, you know, we're driving down the I-5. It's kind of, uh, you know, dark, getting into evening, all of that. And, uh, you know, we're going right before the grapevine, and we, get, we pull over, uh, we get grass, uh, uh, not grass, gas. Okay, <laughs> or again, yes, there's, a, there, there's some grass around the grapevine. There's that too, but uh, that wasn't our interest. Um, yes, so, yeah, but we're, we're, getting, we're getting gas, gas. Okay, as you can see, I got three hours of sleep, <laughs> and it's showing. Okay, but uh, so we get gas, fill up our tank, everything, but... Uh, we get off, and this is kind of the major uh, turnoff right before the, the grapevine. You know, there's like three, four different gas stations there and uh, food places and all that. Uh, we fill up, but uh, right as we get on the on-ramp, uh, we notice this really strange sound. And, um, and then the, the car is driving funny and everything, too. And it's like, what is happening? So... Uh, like something is, is clearly, it, it, it's dawning on us, something is clearly wrong. Now, by the grace of God, and I don't know why, but if, you'll, if you ever notice driving down on the I-5 going south, um, you have that major turnoff with all the gas stations there. But then as you, right, you get on the highway again, there's an immediate turnoff again. And it only leads to one gas station there's, there's this like shell gas station. That's all there is at that one, one uh, turnoff. But that was God's deliverance and protection for us. We get off, we get to the shell gas station, and lo and behold, what we discover is my uh, driver's side, the rear tire had completely exploded. Uh, like, exactly. It's like, we looked at this, we go, whoa, right? Like, we're like, not just whoa. Like, we're like, whoa, you know? Uh, but look at that. I mean, it just completely exploded. And we're just shocked, right? Um, you know, by the grace of God, we called around, AAA, different things. But, uh, you know, there was a tire center. They uh, did portable tire delivery installation service, all that. And so we got that taken care of. And uh, the culprit was this, that my tire pressure was too low. It was too low. And I have to admit that I knew that. <laughs> oh, man. Whoa, hey, 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 hey. Hey, where's the forgiveness here? <laughs> I'm confessing, all right. Uh, but yes, it was too low, and uh, it was my fault, honestly. I ignored the warning signs. Uh, I even knew, I even know this on the drive down, as we're going down the I-5, I knew, I, I knew, like, wait a minute, I'm driving a Prius Prime, why am I only getting, like, 35 miles per gallon? It's, I need to be getting 55, like, what's going on here, right? Uh, 
And it wasn't, yeah, I wasn't getting very efficient mileage out of my car. Um, and there was actually something on the dashboard. By the way, if you ever notice a yellow light that appears <laughs> on your dashboard, <laughs> it's a symbol of a tire. I encourage you to pay attention to it. <laughs> Do not ignore it. I learned the hard way yesterday not to ignore it. <laughs> and uh, so that was the culprit right there. That was it. And you know, I felt like God taught me a lesson. And he was showing me, like I felt like what God was showing me even through that is, that is like sin. A lot of times, I feel like God is giving a warning signal. This is danger. This is harm. And if you don't confess this, if you don't deal with this, it's going to really explode. It's going to lead to disaster. And God is giving his warning lights. Why? Not because he's, you know, condemning, trying to shame you. No, that's not God's heart. He's trying to save us. He loves you. This is protection. This is deliverance. But in order to know what the right remedy is, you've got to know what the right problem is. And this is what God says in his word. If you confess, forgiveness, the blood of Jesus, protection, freedom, liberation. And though your sins may be great, God's grace and mercy is even greater. It's even greater. The cross shows us that. Confession of our sin can only lead to joy. Admitting it can only lead to joy because admitting it before God can only lead to forgiveness and reconciliation with God. That's, that's where it will lead to life, a clean heart, new life, a new beginning. And we'll talk next week about how the cross actually leads us not just to confess our sins, but actually changes us. Uh, you know, we don't just keep living a life of sin. No, that's not what the cross is about. Uh, it actually changes us, and we live a new direction. But for now, what you need to know is that the cross leads you to the joy of forgiveness. Where are you at today? And as God is speaking to you and I, uh, he wants to offer this forgiveness, this freedom, this joy, this reconciliation. Would you take it? Would you receive it? Jesus has already done everything possible to, to, make, to procure it for you and I. I want you to respond uh, to God. And as we respond to God, uh, wherever you're at, whatever God is revealing to your heart, and he's bringing to your mind and your conscience right now into your soul. Rather than ignoring those warning lights, uh, would you heed it? Would you confess it? Would you bring it to the light so that God can heal you and forgive? There's a psalm, Psalm 51. And I think this is a great prayer. A prayer that King David prayed before God. And I want us to make this our prayer as we come to take communion. If you're a follower of Jesus and you are saying, Lord Jesus, once again, have mercy upon me. This is your heart posture. 
then you're, you're welcome to come. If you don't know Jesus, we would love to talk to you about him. Um, but here's a great pr- prayer of confession. David says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy in gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy, the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Let's uh, come before the Lord and let's pray this sincerely before God and the promise is he will restore you with joy. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We would love to hear from you and help you take one step closer to Jesus. To contact us or for more information, please go to www.thewellsgv.org.